Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week we have another Rock and Roll Hall of Famer. It is drummer Chris France, obviously of Talking Heads and the Tom Tom Club. I think most people know the Talking Heads story. If they don't, you're in luck because last year, Chris published his memoir, Remain in Love. It is a fantastic book that tells his story as well as the story of the bands and how he became sort of the artist that he is. And what I think is at the core of this book is the, the depth or the strength of his relationship with his wife, Tina Weymouth. You, you read the book and it's so inspiring. It's almost, I'm almost envious that these two people who are so smart and so artistic and so good for each other, found each other, work hard on their relationship and keep it going after almost 50 years. It is a miracle. So we talk about that. We talk about how this even happens. And, uh, and of course, we talk about how he became the open-minded, creative artist that he is. That's something that I went into this... Con well, this is something that really kind of baffles me about Talking Heads in the first place. How did these four art students, white art students from Rhode Island, well, not from, but from that school, become the artists that they became? And what gave them the the cojones, the balls to make that kind of music that they made. You know, they grew up liking all kinds of music and then they went out and they made all kinds of music. And I guess that doesn't, maybe that's not that weird, but to me that is, that's miraculous. I'm just shocked that anyone was able to do that. Chris has had quite a life from his upbringing to Talking Heads to the success of Tom Tom Club. I mean, look, he leads, they, I should say, lead a very charmed life and it is all thanks to mariah carey and genius of love let's just be honest about it and the fact that the talking heads have never dated and continue to live on as one of the greatest bands of all time anyway i hope you like this conversation chris is great and obviously his music is fantastic he called me from his home in connecticut in reading the book as i mentioned i read it twice to get ready to talk to you and there were three main <laughs> Pillars, I guess, is the best way to describe it. Three main pillars that make up Chris France, who he is, and the charmed life he's led. And you can call them pillars, or you can just say these are things that I was really lucky to have, or fortunate, or blessed, or whatever you want to say. First and foremost, you are extremely fortunate that Tina Weymouth loves you. That's the thing that I thought about most in this book, because men fall in love with women all the time, but the true power comes from when that woman loves them back. And the fact that you guys have had 42, 43 years of, of a strong relationship is a miracle. You know this. It's a miracle. And yeah. so it's one thing for you to love your wife. It's a whole other thing for someone like Tina Weymouth, as great as she is, to love you back. That has to be one of the best things about being Chris Prince. Well, you're absolutely right. Except it's been 44 years. Oh, okay. It was 42 <laughs> uh, in the book. And I uh, uh, 44 years of marriage. And I think we were together for five years before that. Wow. So, you know, it, yes, I've been so lucky. And I had to kind of work at it, you know, to, to get Tina's attention because she, when I met her, well, this is all in, in my book, of course, but when I first met her, she she had another boyfriend and a whole lot of guys that were interested in, in her as well. Uh, it wasn't like I was the only one. 
you know. But uh, yeah, I had to use my powers of, uh, well, Bernie Worrell from Parliament Funkadelic would refer to it as the powers of woo. <laughs> you have to learn how to woo somebody. And, and fortunately, um, she broke up with that first boyfriend and I was there and, and uh, ready to exercise the powers of woo. Yes, you did. <laughs> and and yeah. Tina responded very well. And uh, yeah. and I, there's there's never been any question in my mind how much uh, she cares for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I feel very fortunate about that also because you know sometimes people lose interest uh, and over the years, but. We our our life has been really romantic in the true sense of the word. Not just what we do together, but you know, traveling together and raising a family. It's been an amazing experience for me, and uh, I feel like every guy should be so lucky. They should, and they're not. And you know that you have a special thing. In fact, you talking about the powers of woo. Um, <laughs> I feel like I got to share this story because it's in the book. You go over to her house, to her apartment one night. You just say, I got to be honest. I'm here because I want to sleep with you. Yeah. And uh, it didn't, I don't think it necessarily happened that night, but at least you, you staked your claim. This is what I'm all about, Tina. Eventually we got to get to this point. And you yeah. did. Yeah. Yes. I, I, I felt like I, f- on that particular night, I, I felt like I'd been beating around the bush for too long. <laughs> yeah. And she responded very well. She 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 said, oh, oh, Chris, uh, you know, that's very nice, but I already have a boyfriend and I couldn't possibly do that. Mm-hmm. And it gave me the opportunity to say, well, if you ever change your mind, <laughs> you know where I'll I am. Yeah. 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 You're a lucky man. Um, okay. The second pillar is, as I could tell, is that you are so fortunate to have come from such a strong family, to have come from a family that was well-traveled and educated and respectable and created the foundation. I, I mean, I'm, I, I, in some ways, I believe, you know, if you come from a stronger family, then you're more apt to adopt those habits in your own marriage and in your own family, because you know what one looks like. And I have to think that that was an influence. I have to think that the fact that both of you really come from these fantastic, creative, educated families that do such interesting things is what informed your life to be as rich and solid as it has been. Yes. Well, well, thank you. Yeah. I I felt like it was important to to write about my my background mm-hmm. uh, because yes I you know my background compared to say Nikki Six from Motley mm-hmm. Crue is like uh, my background is like a Mary Poppins kind of story <laughs> compared to his you know yeah. and uh, and I I was very fortunate in that respect also um, you know my dad was a a military guy, and my mother was a beautiful Southern belle. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, she was hot. And my dad was handsome and tall. And both of them were, when you talk about pillars, both of them became 
pillars of their communities uh, um, as they as they grew up, particularly in their in their you know fifties and sixties. They they became more and more community active. Yeah, uh, my dad was a great example of how how a gentleman should behave. And uh, but he also had a very good sense of humor, so I understood that that was a good component to have. And uh, my mother was uh, very genteel, but she loved the arts. Mm. Actually, both of my parents loved the arts, even though neither of them were artists per se. They they but they appreciated the arts and they encouraged uh, my participation in in music and and painting and things like that there was never a moment of discouragement and uh, uh, you know I, I've been with some some musicians on tour with them and we we talk about our childhood and and like Andy Partridge from XTC mm-hmm. for example mm-hmm. said to me that well he asked me what my parents were like and particularly what my mother was like and he said, my mom, when I used to try to practice my guitar, I'd go down to the basement and she she wouldn't bother to pull the plug on me. She'd turn off the electricity in the entire house. <laughs> so, so, you know, neither of my parents had substance issues or anything like that. So I, I, I'm not the child of an alcoholic or, yeah. or a, you know, drug addict. Right. But, but uh you came from good stock and it helped yeah. you, I think, to be a, a good person and my, as well. And my, my, grand, my grandmother, my maternal grandmother from Kentucky said to me, Chris, you come from a long line of fine people and you don't have to kowtow to anybody. <laughs> I thought, okay, <laughs> I, won't, I won't do that. <laughs> no kowtowing. Um, okay, the third, you just kind of touched on this, the third pillar that I was thinking about is how fortunate you are to have such an open creative mind. And you were just saying that some of that probably came from your parents who weren't, who appreciated the arts without being artistic people necessarily themselves. But this capacity of yours throughout the, every time you would talk about, you know, I was getting really into the new modern lovers record. And then I was really loving Fela Kuti and I, but I was really getting turned on by the new craft work and everything was different and everything was diverse and all the people you worked with were diverse. That's the beauty of talking heads and Tom Tom club is the diversity that it's, <laughs> it's a bunch of white kids making this racket that is so exotic sounding is uh-huh. what makes it so fascinating. And I thought good for Chris that he embraced this open creative mind of his, because it's allowed the rest of us to enjoy what's in there and the product yeah. of it, you know? You know, uh, when I was growing up, I would listen to rock and roll on the radio, you know, mm-hmm. the little transistor radio of the right. 50s and early 60s. Uh, but I would also go, my mom would send me to uh, the young people's concerts. I'm thinking, in particular, the Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra, which is a very fine mm-hmm. symphony. And uh, they would do concerts for young people, kind of modeled on the Leonard Bernstein things that he did on TV, which I also watched. 
and there was that. And there were, then I also played in the, the elementary school band and, you know, all these things helped. Well, it helped, it helped me to know that it wasn't just about rock and roll or what was current. Mm -hmm. it, it wasn't all about the latest hits, although the latest hits were always pretty cool, but it was also about a, a whole history of art that, and music that preceded the current hits and, and, yeah. and also thinking about the future, yeah. you know, thinking about, well, as talking heads and also Tom Tom club, we didn't want to just model ourselves on another band that had mm -hmm. already existed. We, we felt mm -hmm. it was, this was instilled in us at, at the Rhode Island school of design that it it's okay to pay homage we all do it. Pay homage to the artists that you love, and and to uh, be inspired by them. That's yeah. great. That's yeah. what we all do. But if you're just copying them, then you're not a serious artist. Mm -hmm. You're just a copycat. Right. So we, we we the idea was that you must dig dig in, and you must mm -hmm. find something that is unique unto yourself and bring that up and show it to people. And yeah. so that's what we did. You did, and you did it better than most. In fact, that's one of the things that I have. So I had Jerry on here last year um, uh -huh. and uh, he was great too. But the thing, and, and I don't remember getting a very clear answer on this. The thing that I find really interesting about talking heads is that what gave you guys the, I don't know, the license or the cojones to go from being this skittery post-punk band to emulating someone like Fela Kuti? I know the song Izimbra, which is my favorite Toggy Cat song, by the way, <laughs> was sort of the gateway into yeah. African rhythms. Like, did you have peers? I was trying to think of another band like yourselves that would have been embracing Afrobeat as well as you guys did. What made you think you could do that? Or maybe it was just, you know, yeah. naivety. I don't know. Well, uh, in in the case of, of Afrobeat, it, it was something that, that, in fact, we had been listening to since our, our RISD days. Uh -huh. uh, I got my first Fela Kuti record in like 1972, I think mm -hmm. it was. And there was a 
multicultural store in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And, and I, I happened to be in Cambridge and I, I walked into this store and they, you know, they sold dashikis and, uh, you know, yeah. fat fabric, uh-huh. like African fabrics and, and they sh- sold Indian spices and they sold like gem uh, bays and stuff like mm. that. But they, they also had a record section. So I went, I was looking at it and I, one of the first records I noticed was, I think it was called uh, Fela Kuti Africa seven and Africa 70. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it had all of his wives, his multitude of wives in the, fo- in, in the kneeling down bare breasted and uh, in the shape of a seven and, a, and an O a zero. 70. <laughs> I thought, whoa, <laughs> I want to I I hear this. Uh-huh. And I also bought a, a Chief Commander Ebenezer Obey record mm-hmm. and, uh, on that same trip and Manu Dibango, Sol Makosa, uh-huh. and which was a, actually a hit at the time. So we, we, we had been assimilating and uh, how, how shall I say, absorbing by osmosis these African sensibilities. And uh, I think David even read a book called African Rhythms and Sensibilities by one of the great professors at, at Yale hmm. taught musicology. I, re- I, I read in something just this morning that Brian Eno once again is claiming that he turned us on to African music, but really we, we sort of, it was a meeting of the minds. He was into it and we were into it already for years before we even met him. So one thing we were always doing with talking heads was trying to raise the bar, you know, um, Uh with our own, with our own songwriting and our own performances rather than just do the same thing by rote all the time. So we, we, but by the time Fear of Music came along, we we decided that we would. Um, Izimra started as an instrumental, and it was mm-hmm. simply an instrumental. We decided we would try to, not exactly copy, but do something in the style of Afrobeat, mm-hmm. and 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 we worked on it, and we worked on it, and we worked on it, and I I simplified my drum beat to the so that it wouldn't interfere and sound like rock. I simplified my drum beat to just a bass drum and a hi-hat. That was it. Uh, but uh, the guitar parts were more complicated. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess it was Brian Eno who suggested, this is too good to not have lyrics. We need lyrics. And we thought, well, what are we going to write? Uh-huh. And uh, David David wasn't able to think of anything either at, uh, for li- lyrically. So so Brian came up with the idea that we use this the the chant from this Dada poet Hugo Ball. He was actually one of the founding fathers of Dada, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, he he ran that place called Cabaret Voltaire, which was the 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 Dada version of the mud club yeah. and um we really love to play that song and it was really it was kind of uh it's the kind of song that really transports you 
even though you're, you may be playing a very simple part or, a, or, or you might not have a, you might be out in the audience and you might not have a very good seat, but you hear that song and you're like, whoa, mm -hmm. this, is, this is taking me somewhere. Absolutely. And, and that's what we hope to do. Once we hit that point, we kind of, well, the next step was remain in light. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a classic. And one of the things, I know you've talked about remain in light a lot, and uh, Jerry and I discussed it a little bit last year, too. One of the things that I took from your book, and I hope I understood this correctly, to me, one of the greatest guitar solos in history is Adrian Ballou on The Great Curve. And uh -huh. it sounded like from your book that he just happened to be at Compass Point at the time. And so it was like, hey, Adrian, do you want to come play? It wasn't thought out. It wasn't in the creation of the song. Someone wasn't saying, you know what we really need right here is an Adrian Blue guitar solo. It was by happenstance. Do I have that right? Well, it, it's close. Um, okay. What, what happened was actually... We, we had moved our recording operation up to New York after okay. doing the basic tracks. And uh, David said, uh, after we recorded the basic tracks, which every everybody agreed were kind of extraordinary, mm -hmm. uh, David said, look, these tracks are really wild and wonderful, and uh, I need some extra time to work on the lyrics. Mm -hmm. I don't want to just, you know, I don't want to rush it. And we said, fine. So, so uh, he, he took a ride around the country, at, around, uh, I think through the sort of the Mid-South in a rental car, listening to the radio and getting lyrical ideas. Because, you know, driving is a good way to get ideas. Right. We, then we, when he had enough lyrics to begin, uh, we, we went to Sigma Sound in New York which is in the, the back of the old Ed Sullivan Theater building, or used to be, it's, it's not there anymore. Mm -hmm. But we went to Sigma Sound and uh, we were doing edits and, and David was doing vocals and we were going to do some background vocals with Nona Hendricks. 
Oh, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, Nona Hendricks. Nona Hendricks, and 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 sometimes all of us with Nona, with Nona standing closer to the mic than the rest of us, so it, mm-hmm. it would sound good. And uh, Tina and I took the opportunity uh, to go up to Massachusetts to to MIT in Cambridge to work on the cover, which we did. And while we were away. Adrian Ballou came through New York with playing with David Bowie mm-hmm. and um, Jerry and David were, we had met Adrian before the first time we met him was once when we played in Nashville and then we met him again. So uh, also in Indiana, we had played, he had actually, his band had played with us out there, his band, the bears. So they were able to nab Adrian and he came in and he, did solos on a few songs. Was it two or three? I'd I'd have to check. But you know, on The Great Curve, it is fantastic, but it's also, it's a composite of several tapes. Mm. As as one often does with solos in -hmm. in the studio, you take the best part from the beginning and another another version Mm -hmm. for for the middle, and then maybe a third part for the end. So yes, Adrian did a great job. He's he's amazing. Um, you know, something else I was thinking about in terms of these kind of pillars or or points of fortunate circumstance. I'm imagining the satisfaction that Sire must have felt signing you, because the trajectory that the band goes on is so wild and different from where it began. And I just think Sire made a bet this band was worth going all in on and they turned out, it turned out they were right. And that, uh, that doesn't happen very often either. You know, who would have projected? So this is my question, I guess. When you guys were starting out and there's talking head 77 and love comes to building on fire and stuff like that, would you have ever imagined that the band would have taken the, the path that it did or were you not thinking in those terms? Or I don't know, what, what was your plan? When you when you guys come together, do you think we're just a bunch of people who love music? Who knows where this is going to go, you know? Yeah. Well, like I said before, we, we knew that we had to do something that was unique unto ourselves yeah. or, or we wouldn't be happy. Yeah. And uh, all three of us, uh, at first there was just uh, Tina and David and, and me. Uh-huh. And later, Jerry came on board, and and Jerry came on board just before we made our first album. No, I didn't have any idea that it would be as wildly, wildly exciting mm-hmm. as it was. But but my my idea was that we would be a different kind of band, uh, and and that we we would be good at parties. <laughs> and uh and that and then people people would get a good feeling when they heard us and it and that we would somehow exert a positive influence mm-hmm. you know without being like goody two shoes or mm-hmm. anything like that that mm-hmm. didn't interest us at all <laughs> right right so so we always hope for the best and i knew that we were going to get somewhere i had i never had any any doubt Mm-hmm. But I had also, you know, we also were doing artwork, uh, painting mm-hmm. and 
drawings and th things like that at the same time. So it, it felt like, well, I felt like I'm, I'm going to give this music thing five years mm. and see how, see how it goes. And, and if, if it's not happening after five years, I'll go, I'll concentrate on painting again. Okay. Uh, okay. And I think Tina felt the same way and probably David too, but we got, we, I mean, we got a, a big head of steam and we were like rolling pretty good after, after no. six or eight months, really. We, in no. fact, from time to time, we had to put on the brakes because mm -hmm. we didn't want to like burn out. <laughs> yeah, I bet. How come uh, Love Comes to Building on Fire is not on the debut album? I can't compare love when it's not love. It's not love. It's not love. Which is my face. Which is a building. Which is on fire. That was your first song, and that was the first yeah, that, single. Why? That's a good. That's a good question. I can't remember why. Okay. <laughs> maybe it's just maybe it's just that we thought, well, we've already put that out. People have uh, heard that. Let's give them some new stuff. Maybe yeah. that's. What, what okay. We I was curious about that. Now, so something else that I've always been curious about. To me, um, I would say after speaking in tongues around little creatures into true stories. Talking Heads remain an excellent band, but I would say they become they become less risky. Maybe they're more kind of pop songs. There's not that there's not the skittery post punk. There's not the Afro beat necessarily that's heavy anymore. As it's happening, are you thinking, well, let's change directions again. Let's embrace pop music. Or if Brian Eno had produced uh, Little Creatures, maybe it would have sounded. Differently, I don't know. What's your take on that? Challenge? Yeah. Um, well, I'm sure if Brian worked on it, it would have sounded differently. Mm -hmm. uh, but by that time, we we had we had kind of uh, moved on and you explored the talents of Brian Eno. Mm -hmm. But you know, both those albums you mentioned, Little Creatures and True Stories, was the first time that David came to the rest of the band with songs recorded as demos. Hmm. So uh, 
they were not fully fleshed out or anything like that. The, we in the band had to do that, but it was him playing a guitar with a, a, a beatbox mm-hmm. and singing. And uh, they were they were pretty much, we could hear that they were good songs and we could hear that they were kind of Americana or mm-hmm. something like that. And that's something that we had never really done before. So we thought, well, David's got these songs. He wants to do these songs. He's probably not going to do the record if we don't do these songs. <laughs> so let's roll with it. And and that's that's what we did. Okay. And, uh, you know, it was the first time we ever played anything really resembling a country song. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, maybe the big country on, on our, our second album. That has some country elements, but that's more of a, like a Neil Young country. Right. But anyway, uh, so so these were songs written by David, and, and uh, the rest of the band didn't have any real input into the writing. We had input into the arranging and, yeah. you know, what it, well, what are the drums going to sound like, right. that type of thing. But... Uh, what is the drum part going to be? What is the bass part going to be? What are the mm-hmm. keyboards going to be? Mm-hmm. So it was a collaboration in that way, but but we were working from demos recorded by David. So it was really his, he was going that way. Yeah. One of the real interesting um, nuggets of trivia that came out of your book that really struck me was recording Road to Nowhere. That kind of Zydeco accordion sound, I believe, was uh, was your idea, right?
I think it was. Uh, yeah. It was, I got my friend, well, Tina and I were both good friends with Jimmy Mac. Jimmy Mac. Uh-huh. Tina calls him the Clint Eastwood of accordion players. Because he's like tall and lanky and wears cowboy boots. And he's from, he's from uh, Lafayette, Louisiana. But he was living in New York and a good friend of ours. And uh, yeah, so we brought him in and he brought his uh, frat, fratoire player, the washboard player, mm, mm-hmm. uh, El, El Pantalones. Mm. <laughs> and, ah, and so ah. they, they added some good Southwest Louisiana flavor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And you, the drum, the kind of marching drum thing that you sustained through just about the entire song uh, was not played to a click track. That was you just maintaining that martial beat that whole time. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't like to play to a click track. I, it freaks mm. me out. Yeah. Cause yeah. I, cause I hear like, Oh, I'm a little bit ahead or, Oh, I'm a little bit behind in it. And it, it makes me uncomfortable. So yeah, I, I, can see I, I noticed Sly Dunbar refuses to use a, click track also so i i'm not alone that way <laughs> there's nothing wrong with being on the same page as sly dunbar that's for sure <laughs> yeah. okay i want to ask you some tom tom club questions first of all i it's kind of amazing to me that this little project that you guys sort of did with the idea of just i want to make some music that my friends can dance to becomes the amazing institution that it is and in fact, I think my favorite Tom Tom Club album is uh, The Good, Bad, and The Funky. just hit Spotify, by the way. It wasn't on there before, and I'm so glad. I know, it just hit, um, because we re-released it for Record Store Day on vinyl. Is that why? We, yeah, which, which, and then we took the digital files and gave them to Spotify yeah. and all, all the streaming platforms. But, but yes, it, yes it, 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 it was sort of like, I'm glad you liked it. I, I like it mm. a lot, too, and it, it was kind of like a lost... Tom Tom Club album. Yeah. I mean, it, it had a it had an official re- release, and we toured behind it and everything. But it's kind of like it never really woke up, you know. Um, I love it. Talk about talk about purges of creativity. It reminds me, in some ways, of 
first of all, I love UB40. So there's kind of a UB40 feel, but then also gorillas. You know, Damon Albarn, who you mentioned in your book, goes on to start Blur, but then he's got this weird little creative offshoot thing in Gorillas, where he just lets his freak flag fly. And yeah. that's what Tom Tom Club kind of reminds me. And in, now Gorillas is arguably bigger than Blur. You guys, it's not bigger than the Talking Heads, but you've probably had more financial success. But this album just is a, it's just, you're vomiting amazing creativity all over the place. And, I, and it works, I love it, you know? It's so upbeat, funky, and fun. Thank you. Yeah, we recorded that record right here, where where I'm sitting. Really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, we have a studio that's a uh-huh. couple of rooms here. I'm in one of the rooms. Right. Tom Tom Club is has been very sporadic over the years because first we had another band that we had to you know, uh, play with called Talking Heads. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so we had to squeeze the, t- the Tom Tom Club records in where we could. And, and a couple of times, I think we got kind of rushed because of that. And then we'd go for years because we had two little children. And, and uh, I think you can imagine how distracting that might be. I have three and little then, children. I know exactly how to Yeah. <laughs> And the, and the world has, since the first album, uh, the first Tom Tom Club album, the wor- world has not exactly been breaking our door down for a new Tom Tom Club album. Mm-hmm. So uh, we kind of do them when we feel like it. Smart. And uh, that one we recorded in the year 2000. So it was 21 years ago. Crazy. Mm-hmm. Crazy. But finally, it's on vinyl mm-hmm. and uh, and also in the digital domain yes uh speaking of which i forgot to mention this happy birth we should say happy birthday to fear of music which came out 42 years ago today i just saw that on social media one of those on this day in history you know what i mean wow yeah 1979 Um, that was a darn good record yes it was that might be my favorite talking heads album one of the things that struck me in listening back to good bad and the funky is how you guys sometimes some talk tom tom club songs are nothing more than you paying homage to the people you love there's who feeling it
And then like on the Downtown Rockers album, that song, Downtown Rockers, you're just naming all the people you love that you came up with that influenced you that I, it's a, I love that. And again, going back to this open mind of yours, it's uh, some white kid from Kentucky to love all of that stuff as much as you do and to pay tribute to it. I love that. You know, it's funny you mentioned that I've got those bands right here. Yes, you do. <laughs> and uh, a lot of people have written books, myself included, about this particular period of time, you know, yeah. in New York. Um, it was an amazing time. But yeah. not too many people have written songs about it. I don't think anyone except for Tom Tom Club. That's right. So, so uh that's right. yeah, that was an, it was an amazing time good okay i have to i have to ask we try to touch on very sensitively the business side of things on here i mean genius of love has to have made you a rich man right well yeah i guess you could say that <laughs> uh, you know uh, it, let me put it this way uh, you know how much a college edu education costs. And, yes. Uh, thanks to Mariah Carey, bless her heart, we were able to put two kids through college. You know, That's for amazing. Four, for four years each. So, so yeah. It, yeah. And you know, it continues to uh, to do pretty well. That song. Mm -hmm. It's a great you song. <laughs> it is a great song. There are many Tom, great Tom Tom Club songs. Do you? Um, okay, I made it. A, I'm making the choice. I I know that David Byrne is can be a prickly person, and I'm choosing not to dwell on that. To be completely honest in here, it. Uh, I love you guys, and I know that that's out there, and I just don't want to make you talk about it, and I'm not interested in getting deeper into it. However, I will ask one question. <laughs> Do you happen to know if there is any kind of tangible jealousy on his end that something you guys created away from the band is as successful as it is? Because his solo career, as interesting as it is, has never been that 
hugely successful. Well, let me just say this, that, that David did not offer us any congratulations when we did have success. Okay. Uh, Good. We'll leave it at that. We'll leave it at yeah. that. Um, okay. There were some personalities that in the book that really come to life that I wanted to ask you about. Um, I know you've written about them, but maybe brief synopsis of some of these people for our listeners would be interesting. Uh, Johnny Ramone sounds like a really unpleasant person to uh, go on tour through Europe with. The rest of the guys sound great, but Johnny, um, everything was grim. He doesn't like foreign food. He doesn't like foreign languages. Yeah. Uh, none of it. That can't have been easy. Well, you know, Johnny was mean as a snake. <laughs> he was like, he was just a mean person. He was mean to his own band. He was mean to his women. And he was mean to us uh, from time to time. Not not all the time, but we had to put up with that because the rest of the Ramones were like, please, don't try to change him. This is just how he is. And um, I, I blame his parents, really. I, th I think I think it was his, you know, the, at the beginning of this interview, we were talking about how your background affects how you are. And I think that's what happened there. Mm. But, but yes, he was a bully. However, I know for a fact that he was a person who kept the band, like, going. For, for as long as they did. And uh, maybe if he had been a little a little nicer, they all wouldn't have, you know, died. <laughs> but, uh, which, uh, you know, they're such a great band, but they're all gone, except yeah. for Marky. I know. And thank goodness Marky's still with us. Yeah. But, you know, uh, I was, uh, when you see those pictures of, the debut album of the Ramones and all of them standing in front of that wall. And as each one died, you would see the picture with that person missing. And now that picture is just an empty space. That always breaks my heart. Anyway, continue. Yeah. yeah it, it, it was sad because, you know, the first two, the first show we ever did was opening for the Ramones. And Johnny said afterwards, yeah, they suck. They'll make us look good. So it's okay. They can open for us. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then um the first tour we ever did ever was a, that tour of Europe opening for the Ramones all across Europe and the UK wow. and uh it, it was like 30 or 40 some shows it was it was fantastic yeah. despite the fact that Johnny was mean yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Tina you know Tina was uh, it's in my book. Uh, one one time we were backstage in Paris, and the, between the the two bands, we only had one tuner. Those were the days of the, the Strobo tuner, you know. And uh, now everybody's got their own tuner, but uh -huh. in those days there was one to share. And we were about to go on, and Tina needed to tune up, and Johnny was using it for some reason. And she said, "Johnny, I I, I need to use the tuner. May I use it?" And he was like. He didn't even answer her. He he called he called for a member of the road crew to come and uh, bring him his guitar. So uh, Tina said, well, "Why don't you go get it yourself, Johnny?" <laughs> but, 
normally our relationship with him was not so hostile. And as the years went on, it got a little better. Yeah. Uh, we did another tour with them in 1990 called mm-hmm. the Escape from New York Tour. It was Tom Tom Club and the Ramones and Debbie Harry and Jerry Harrison. And it was a lo- loads of fun. And Johnny was much more lighthearted uh, at that period of time. That's good. That's good. Um, I was I was curious too. There were uh, David Bowie is my number one, and his name came up a couple of times. The one one of the funny stories that you tell is him. Um, I, I don't remember what the exact occasion was, but there was food available, and he came and just stuffed his pockets full of peanuts and cheese. Or so, are, is anyone going to eat these peanut the peanuts and cheese? And then he just grabs it, stuffs his pocket. That's not what you imagine with David Bowie, you know? No, not at all. Uh, th- that was the Montreux Jazz Festival. Oh, okay. Or as they say in French, Montreux. Montreux. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we say Montreux. But uh, it was a big gig for us. And uh, we were all, Tom Tom Club was the opening act. And then we would play and then talking heads would play. So Tina and I were working hard and um, there's a knock on the door and I open the door and there's David Bowie in a uh, anorak, sort of a khaki green anorak and uh, looking, you know, very uh, understated. And in fact, he had a home nearby in Switzerland uh, next door to the, the widow of Charlie Chaplin, Una. Oh, Una. Interesting. Yeah. And uh, I didn't ever get to go there or anything, but Adrian Ballou had been there and he Mm -hmm. told me about it. So anyway, uh, yeah, David said he came in and it was the men's dressing room. The women had a separate dressing room. Uh, And uh, (laughs) he said, you know, there was a being being it was Montreux and a, a big deal. There was a very nice cheese and crackers and nuts and fruit. Well, David wasn't interested in the fruit, but he was really interested in the cheese and the nuts. <laughs> and he said, "You going to be eating these?" And of course, we were, we were all nervous and we weren't going to be eating them. So, <laughs> so we said, "No, go ahead." And he wrapped them up in a napkin and put them in his pocket. And uh, I thought, wow, you know, (laughs) that's great. great. One other one I wanted to bring up was Lou Reed. Um, There were a couple of different stories. The first, I loved the detail of learning about his sweet tooth. And you mentioned going, he wanted to be involved with talking heads in the early stages. So you guys met up with him, I believe at his loft or something. And he downs a whole pint of Haagen-Dazs ice cream while you're sitting there. And then everyone goes out. For like a midnight diner meal and he has a stack of pancakes because he's got such a sweet tooth yeah uh that was such that's such interesting color to learn about people like him especially considering a sweet tooth with one of like the the least sweet people is not the right word he's he's just <laughs> he's known for being a little darker you know what i mean yes but um one thing i thought was interesting too and he why did you guys decide a contract that was just this like terrible contract apparently at first and he should know better than that? Yeah. Well, it was a, a standard production deal. We, we later learned from our attorney, it, it was a, sort of a boilerplate thing Yeah. that had been 
concocted by some music lawyer probably back in the 1930s or something like that. Uh-huh. So what it what it stated was that the producer would pay for the recording and he would therefore own the recording, mm. not the band, the producer. And Lou is the producer. Mm. So, uh, and, and that would, he would be allowed to sell that record to the, basically the highest bidder mm-hmm. uh, or, or a friend, you mm-hmm. know, any, you know, he could, he could do with it, whatever he pleased. Mm-hmm. And, uh, our lawyer said, well, this is why uh, so many of the old rhythm and blues artists don't have anything, you know, yeah, yeah, anything to show for their hard work. Yeah. A pot to piss in. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. That was, yeah. the, those were the words the lawyer used. I remember. Actually. I remember. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and so we, we thought, fuck, Lou. And uh, now, in retrospect, I'm not sure if Lou even knew that this was the right. agreement his manager had offered us. Right. But right. I, I have a feeling he probably did. Mm-hmm. And uh, he should have done anyway. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, but we became, we, we remained friends with Lou mm-hmm. and uh, we miss him very much. Totally. Totally. He was he was a piss and vinegar kind of guy. That's it. Yes, that's it. That's the way it is. Yep. He had a major sweet tooth. Um, I wanted to ask you specifically about Compass Point. Do you still maintain Tip Top? Is that the name of your like apartment or condo or whatever down that, there? That's the name of the the building that our little apartment is in. Okay. Uh, T- Tina named the building. Yeah. Chris Blackwell had built it in the hopes of starting an artist colony there at Compass Point, you know, people who lived there year round. And, um, and we said, okay, we're in. And mm-hmm. we, we bought one of the apartments and it was, it was the first thing we ever owned. And to tell you the truth, how we, how we were able to buy it was by making a record. The first Tom Tom club record, instead of getting a huge advance, we got an apartment <laughs> and, and, uh, it was a pretty good deal. And um, uh, Sly and Robbie lived in that uh, building, Tip Top, uh, Wally Badaru, uh, Barry Reynolds, all, all the Compass Point All-Stars. Grace Jones lived there for a while. Tyrone Downey, uh, even Sean Connery lived in the, really? the apartment across from us for a little while. And uh I think he was waiting for his own home to be renovated or something like that. But, but that, that was wild. Uh, those were great times. Now we're, we're the only musicians left in the, really? in the building. And sadly the studio, it's now a, a complex of certified public accountants. Hmm. It's there's no studio there. Everything was ripped out. And That's the sad. opposite of an art uh, community, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. But it, I, I'll, I'll, I will say this, it, it's a lot quieter than it used mm. to be. <laughs> I bet. I bet. Yeah. I, that I have a real fascination with Compass Point and, uh, because it just, I can't imagine a more idyllic place to make records. Um, in fact, I had Terry Manning on here. Oh last yeah. Year too, who yeah. managed it for years. And, uh, he was telling some fa- amazing stories about recording with Bjork and Lenny Kravitz and all these people down there. 
when you're there now, I, I wanted to add, I was curious about that. You guys being the last musicians to still maintain a residence down there. When you look back, and I don't know if it's in the book or not, but what's just your lasting memory of recording at Compass Point? Because I am eternally fascinated by that place. Well, we were the last to leave, but we we were also with Talking Heads, the first band to record there sure. yeah. to make an album. There had been some mixing and some overdubbing and stuff done, but nobody had sat down to make an entire record. And we did that with more songs about buildings and food. Mm -hmm. And um, so uh, some of my lasting, most lasting impressions are from that time. And being picked up at the airport, uh, we had come from my grandmother's funeral in Kentucky, mm -hmm. Tina and I, and it was a very sad time. And we we flew to, after the f funeral, we flew to Nassau from Kentucky, and we were picked up at the airport by Jerry Harrison and mm -hmm. Tina's sister in one of these mini mokes, you know, uh, mm -hmm. like uh, it's sort of, I think they were made by Volkswagen maybe, or mm -hmm. some, uh, anyway, an open air vehicle, very dangerous mm -hmm. to drive in. I, I, I don't think they're even legal anymore, mm -hmm. but that's what they picked us up in. And you, from the airport, the studio was only a couple miles away. And, and, and to get there, you, you drive through a big cut in the, the coral. Those, those Bahamian islands are all uh, limestone, mm. uh, which is, you know, ancient coral. And um, they had cut through a giant hill. And as you come through that cut and you see, you see the the su Southern Atlantic Ocean. And it's this brilliant blue and green, and you know waves coming in, and another reef out in the distance, and palm trees swaying. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and you know, it was like it was. I had never been to a tropical island before, so mm -hmm. it was it's like another dream come true for me. Yeah, yeah. and. Uh, that image, I mean, every time we go back there and we drive through that cut in the rocks, I think, wow. Yeah. It's, st it's still, you know, it's yeah. still here. That's amazing. <laughs> and, and, and then there was the time we, we did remain in light. That was very intense work and very, uh, shall we say, challenging in many mm -hmm. ways. And, and then there was another very challenging time when we did the first Tom Tom Club album because we, we were like, what are we going to do? You know? Yeah, yeah. And the first thing we did was Wordy Rapping Hood. And Classic.
that, classic. That turned out well. It and, did. That's <laughs> what I mean. These, I mean, you're, you know, a lot of people talk about Blondie uh, appropriating rap with uh, Rapture and everything, which she did, but you guys are right there too. You know, do it, yeah. merging all of it. It's just a stew of different things that you see happening around you, probably in New York City, and uh, you make it your own. It's fascinating. Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, we didn't know about uh, Blondie's Rapture when we, when we did Wordy Rapping Hood, and I don't think she knew that the, the, the two records came out very close to each other. Right, right. Maybe a couple months apart. Mm. But uh, oh, we love Debbie Harry, though. Oh, she's, she's great, too. Yeah. So how do you, do you guys maintain a, you have what, like your apartment or whatever in, in Compass Point? You live in Connecticut. Do you have a place in Kentucky too? What else? Where? No, I I, I don't have a place in Kentucky. Uh, uh, Tina has a family home that that has been handed down for several generations in uh, in France in Brittany. Okay. We like to go. We like to go there. Although we haven't been for, we usually go in September, like after mm-hmm. the summer rush, mm-hmm. and. Uh, because of the virus, we haven't been been able to go, sure. and uh, that's a really nice place to be. Uh, yeah, what a charmed life you lead, Chris. I mean, do you? I, I it sounds from an outsider's perspective that you've been able to live off the fruits of your hard work and and music from that era. I mean, have you you produce? I wanted to ask you a couple of questions, at least about your production, because I I'm a big fan of that too. Is that your? Is that what you do every day? Is uh, whatever the heck you want? <laughs> you know, you don't have a jo- you don't go to a job every day. No, I no, I don't. Um, but uh, you know, I I think of myself as an artist, and yeah, that's my job. Uh, and do you still then, paint? Well, I I haven't done any painting, but I'm about to do something. I, I don't want to jinx it by talking mm. about it too much, but I'm I'm about to do some drawings and illustrations for something that I'm planning. Very cool. Very yeah. cool. Speaking of playing, I I meant to ask this. You know, when when I spoke with Jerry last year, the the lockdown had just happened, and uh, his Remain in Light shows with Turquoise and Adrian were being postponed, not necessarily canceled, and we didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah. What's the reason that you and Tina don't join him for that? Is that too close to a Talking Heads reunion, or do you just not want to, or what? Well, there's. We love Jerry. We get along great with Jerry, and I haven't met the band Turquoise, but I but I've seen some videos, and they're really good. I don't know if we were ever really approached, or maybe the first time we were approached, it was when I was in the middle of working on my book or something like that, I guess, I guess I, I, I guess I didn't really, and I, I'm pretty sure Tina would agree with me on this. We, we didn't really want to do like a tribute to our own band, mm. <laughs> you know, with other people. Mm-hmm. If we were going to do it, we'd like to do it with the band. Yeah. You know? That makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, speaking of which, but, do you guys having, ever... Having said that, though, I yeah. having said that, I've seen the performances on 
just on YouTube and stuff mm-hmm. that Jerry and Adrian have done with Turquoise and they're very good. Oh yeah. And we're so lucky they were able to, I, I don't know if it's a full on tour, but I know they were finally able to do some shows on this recently. And yes. I'm so glad I'm going to, I hope to catch one of those shows because um, I'm a big fan of everyone involved. Um, does Tom Tom Club, I mean, I guess at this point you could tour if you wanted, when you wanted, where you wanted. Do you just do it when the when it tickles your fancy or what? Well, at the risk of sign, sounding kind of uh, hard-nosed, we don't really do it for the fun of it. I mean, mm. just for the fun of it anymore. It has to make sense financially to mm. us because mm-hmm. it, costs, it costs a lot of money to take six or eight 10 people, including the crew out on the road with, you know, salaries and hotels and all that insurance. And, and uh, the last couple of tours were fantastic, but we didn't really even break even. So there's so many other things we can do now, like write books or, or uh, just as you said, uh, live, live off the uh, fruits of our labors, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that uh, it doesn't really make sense to go out and lose money. No, if, <laughs> really some, if some fan, fantastic offer came through, we I'm pretty sure we'd be right there. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we're of a certain age. When you remember what it was like, you know, mm-hmm. when it was really hot and really mm-hmm. great, then it's, it's hard to take a sort of... Uh, uh, diminished role. I can see that. And, and, uh, I can absolutely see that. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, we have the uh, your performance on the Tiny Desk show yeah. is will live on forever. That was <laughs> that was awesome. Speaking of Tiny Desk, I one thing I uh, when you mentioned in your book that your brother Roddy was a member of the Urban Verbs, yes. I had never heard of the. I only know that band because Bob Boylan talks about them so often on All Songs Considered. Uh-huh. Not interested. Yeah, and in well, fact, I have to, I like I, I have an issue with Bob because he hates '80s music 
And I love 80s music because that's when I grew up. But his one thing is that he likes urban verbs. And uh, <laughs> so I got turned on to urban verbs from hearing him talk about them. Uh-huh. Full circle yeah. moment here. Yeah, He's a, he's a good guy, Bob. Yeah. I bet he is. I bet he is. You mentioned uh, Grace Jones earlier. Another another little interesting bit of trivia is that you mentioned in the book that you recommended to her that she record Warm Leatherette. Is that right? Yes. Another also, bit of genius uh, from Chris France here. Yes. <laughs> yes. And also Walking in the Rain. Is it Walking in the Rain? Yes. I think yeah. it is. Both of those. Yeah. Good for you, man. She uh, well, must I be think, a lot of fun. Grace? Yeah. Oh, I, it's sort of beyond fun. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's great. I mean, the last time I saw Grace Jones, it, it, in uh, I've seen her, her band members since then, but because uh, we run into each other from time to time, and her son, Paulo, who, who plays percussion with her now but but last time i saw grace is she played the the uh, afro punk festival in brooklyn mm. it was a fantastic show afterwards we were ushered backstage and uh grace gr- greeted us totally nude <laughs> with a bottle of champagne in one hand and a fresh oyster on the half shell in the other hand and she's like oh chris and tina <laughs> I mean, how wonderful is that? That's exactly how you imagine Grace Jones behaving that's in that moment. That's how she is, and and and, but she she does not tolerate any any bullshit. So mm-hmm. fortunately, she uh, she likes us. Mm-hmm. That's <laughs> great. I can imagine if she didn't like you, that would not go down very easily. So yeah, <laughs> good for you. Good for you. Um, one other thing I want to mention, uh, ask you about was using Steve Lillywhite for Naked, which the first half of Naked I love and the second half of Naked sounds so odd to me, but um, maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But Steve is, depending on my mood, he's either my first or second favorite producer of all time. Yeah. What made you think that, because when I think of Steve, I think of those, those martial heavy drums that he brought to like, New Year's Day and Big Country and Marshall Crenshaw and that kind of stuff. What did you hear in Steve that made you think he was the guy for that job?
Well, he, he, he was, by the time we worked with him, he was a very accomplished producer. He was on like the short list of the great, uh, you know, contemporary producers. Uh, but I had met him at my brother's wedding because he, he had worked, he had produced an album with for the Urban Verbs. And I met him at the wedding and I thought, gosh, he's a really nice guy. I really like him. And uh, when it when it came time to choose a producer for for Naked, which was our final album, I knew that there there was tension in the band, and I knew that we needed somebody who could like keep the situation buoyant, and mm -hmm. so we didn't get bogged down and, and uh, just keep it rolling in in a sort of merry way, like merrily we roll along. And 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 Steve Lillywhite is 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 good at that. Oh. He's really good at, uh, you know, keeping things moving along and, and, and at the same time recording very well. Mm -hmm. He brought in another engineer so that he could concentrate on the producing, but which I think is what he does now. Mm -hmm. The engineer was excellent. Richard Mannering. He was he, the man for the job. He was, he was the right man for the job. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and everybody in our band agreed. Okay. Steve Lillywhite. He didn't yeah. have to think about it too much. <laughs> no, that's great. Um, also. Okay. So I, I mentioned earlier, I wanted to touch on some of your production work. First of all, that happy Mondays experience was giving me major anxiety. I, I love them. And I like the yes, please album a lot too. Dealing with Sean at that time just sounds horrendous because you know goodness is in there. You know that he can be great when he's clear-headed and you know the band is fantastic. And I'm sure that you were the man, you guys, you and Tina were the people to bring that out at that moment, but it just seemed impossible. It was very difficult, um, not with the band, but with Sean. Yeah. And, uh, and that sort of filtered down to the band because mm -hmm. I'm sure they felt weird but uh, and I, and I knew that there was something up with the band too because the first or second day of recording when we're where we're getting the drum sounds and actually still setting up the drums mm -hmm. and I'm making sure that 
the drummer is happy with his headphone mix and mm -hmm. everything. He said to me, Gaz, Gary Whalen. I said, well, what would you like to hear in your headphone mix? And he said, nothing. I don't want to hear the rest of the band. <laughs> and I thought, what? <laughs> but that's what he, that's how he felt. He, he would, I guess he knew that the rest of the band was going to be, the rest of the music would be changed or altered or whatever, mm -hmm. re-recorded. Uh, but the drums had to, the drums were there to stay. Yeah. And so uh, I, I understand what he was thinking, mm -hmm. but, Sean was, uh, you know, uh, the, the story is, or the fact is that he was a heroin addict and he had uh, gotten for, for this time. The reason, the reason they went to Barbados or wanted to go to Barbados is there was no heroin in Barbados. Mm. So they were like, Sean, we'll get him clean. Well, he brought a big bottle of methadone. And when he was still in England, in Manchester, he dropped the bottle somehow, and it smashed on the floor of the airport. I've, I've heard stories that Sean was on his hands and knees licking it up, you know. And uh, by the time he, they got to Barbados, which was a long trip, mm -hmm. he was in a really bad state mm -hmm. of withdrawal. So instead of arriving in Barbados, like, oh, wow, the palm trees, the ocean, the beautiful mountains, the lovely people. It was like uh, the guy was going through really bad heroin withdrawal. And um, he, he went out looking for something and he didn't find any heroin. But what he found was crack oh. of which there was plenty hmm. in the Caribbean. You know, and uh, so we started smoking crack in the bathroom of the studio, thinking that we wouldn't notice, <sighs> but we noticed. And yeah. uh, and he he wouldn't stop. He just wouldn't stop. So sure. so we were making the the, the record essentially without Sean, mm -hmm. and Tina would lie down. She found that if you caught him before he f took his first hit of crack for the day. Mm -hmm. And you lay down on the floor like with a child mm -hmm. that he could he could think of lyrics and 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 they were pretty good. Mm -hmm. Tina would write them down, but by lunchtime he was a goner. He was like mm -hmm. uh, you know in the bathroom and not coming out. So uh, there was that, but we we managed to record all the instrumental tracks, and so. Uh, eventually his record company got him into a rehab in, in London, mm. a very good one, a very good one. And he, uh, he straightened out mm. at least long enough to record the vocals uh, over there in, in Sussex. Wow. It was an ordeal. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of producers would have just quit after the first or second day and let somebody else do it. But I don't know, maybe Tina and I are just gluttons for punishment, but we, we hung in there. I got my first gray hairs then. <laughs> there used to be just a couple. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Sean Ryder. Um, okay, well, let me ask you then about uh, producing uh, Conscious Party with Ziggy.
I remember when that album came out and it was, it made a huge splash. I mean, here was Bob's son carrying the torch and the album is great. And tomorrow people is being played all the time. And one bright day, I might actually even like that album better than the other one, but tell me again, how you got chosen to be the producer for that project. Well, it was very unfortunate that uh, the, the original guy who was lined up to produce it, who was a good friend of ours and had worked with us was Alex Sadkin. Yes. Yeah. Alex, Alex had worked with Bob and had recorded um, the later Bob Marley and the Whalers albums. And he had worked with Grace Jones and third world. Mm-hmm. He, he, he recorded and mixed uh, now that we found love, what are we going to do with it? Mm. But, you know, He's a top producer, and um, unfortunately, he was producing some band down at Compass Point, and uh, they'd gone out for dinner, and every, everybody likes to have these op- uh, open-top Jeeps, you know, and uh, down there, and um, there was an accident. Alex was thrown from the car, and he hit his head on a rock, and that, uh, he never woke up. That was the end really sad situation but tina's younger brother Lorique weymouth was working at virgin at the time and his boss was the a and r person uh, nancy jeffries who had signed ziggy and also keith richards to virgin america so Lorique said to her in the in the wake of this bad news he said well, how about Chris and Tina? You know, they they really they really get reggae and they really love reggae, and I think they'd be a good choice. And so uh, Nancy said, "Okay." And we had a meeting with her, and then then we had and she liked us, and then we had a meeting with Rita Marley, and uh, Rita said, "Okay, Chris and Tina, you can do it." And we we decided to do it in New York because we felt a little. After the Happy Mondays thing, mm-hmm. we, we've wait. Was this before that? This is before that. Ziggy was before. Yeah, it was just before. Anyway, we we've having been to Jamaica a few times. We didn't really feel comfortable about working there as producers, and so we thought. I mean, we love Jamaica, but to hang out, not to work, and uh, so we we did it in New York again at Sigma Sound. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a delightful experience. I mean, his band was fantastic. They're an Ethiopian group from Chicago. They had migrated to Chicago and they, they had like law degrees and medical, you know, wow. doctorates and everything, but they, they were, they loved reggae. Mm-hmm. They, they were his band and, and uh, wonderful cats. Mm-hmm. And Ziggy. Ziggy was so young. I mean, he was just like 19. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and his sisters were young, even younger. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's wild. And Stephen. And Stephen was there. Yeah. But it was well, great. Um, I bet. It, it's great. I mean, everything you guys touch is great. That's the thing that I keep coming back to, whether you're producing it or you're playing on it or you're writing it or whatever, it's all fantastic. And, uh, and it moves people, and not very many people can say that about all of their art, but you can. 
And I'm so glad you wrote the book. I love the book. And it's a love letter to everything we've just been talking about. Your wife, first and foremost, but just music and people and creativity and collaboration. You know, the people you get to work with and yes. and take from and learn from. It's all just fascinating. There were so many. I mean, we didn't even get to. So many Phil Thornelli, John Mort, Martin, Chaz Jenkel, all the Wally Batteru, Robert Palmer, all these other people that I just think are fantastic that you mentioned in the book that I get to. They're just great. Anyway, thank you for talking with me, Chris. I just love you a lot. I love everything you put in the world. It's made our lives better. Thank you for that. Thank you so much. It was a great pleasure. I appreciate that. All right, there you have it, Chris France. And Remain in Love is the name of that book, and it is so beautiful. Now, as, as I mentioned in the intro, I just was really hung up on how do these people, how do white, upper-class <laughs> art students grow to have such diverse tastes in music and then, more importantly, have the balls to make their own versions of that music? And I thought, well, how does any, I had an epiphany when I was listening back to this interview to get it ready for you guys, I had an epiphany and I thought, well, how does anybody, how did I grow to like Krautrock and Fela Kuti and Miles Davis and Talking Heads and Iron Maiden and every other piece of music that I love? How did I do that? I did it by having a curiosity, number one, an appreciation for art, and hopefully I'm somewhat intelligent enough to listen to smart people like Chris France. I mean, you know how it is when you love music and you read that article in Rolling Stone and the guy that you're, whose music you're really into is talking about other bands that influenced him and you keep hearing those names over and over so you go back and you figure it out too or you have the older brother or the older cousin or the really good teacher in school or you read the right books or you write the, uh, watch the right movies, whatever it is. Anyone who's fairly intelligent is going to just have an open mind. And thankfully, people like Tina and Chris and the rest of the band took it upon themselves to try and re recreate a lot of that music the best they knew how, and they nailed it. And we are better off for it. So anyway, um, I love that conversation. I especially love that stuff at the end with about uh, Happy Mondays, which is just tragic. I love that band, but man, what a headache that would have been. And Ziggy Marley and the production work and working and living in Compass Point, still doing it. I just have a fascination. Anyway, um, now, next week we are talking to another big-time drummer. Back-to-back um, -back drummers this time, okay? But this guy makes a very different kind of music. So uh, that's who we're going to talk to next week. Huge thanks, as always, to Yan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man for everything that you do. Thank you, buddy. Um, you guys know how to find our page on Facebook. You can give us a like on there. You can send us a message on there, or you can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, hustlepod at gmail.com, or Twitter at thehustlepod. All right? Thanks, everybody. We love you.